Amen. Well, the parable that we just read is traditionally known as the parable of the prodigal son. In fact, it's the most memorable and vivid of all of Jesus' parables, and in many ways it's the key to understanding Jesus' message and Jesus' ministry. While many people call it the parable of the prodigal son, and it's been named that, it really is a parable not just about one son who runs off, it's really a parable about two sons and their relationship with their father. And through the parable, we're challenged to think about our own relationship with God. You know, it's, the amazing thing is, is when you look at the details of this story and how it's told, it's such a well-told story. And it's, so it's such a beautifully portrayed picture of the gospel that it's been an inspiration for artists for over two millennia since it was told. If you look on the screen, there's a painting by Rembrandt Van Rien called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And it was one of the final paintings that Rembrandt ever painted. And we see here both the ravaging effects of the younger son's decisions to run off into this far country and dissolve all that he had with the type of lifestyle that he engaged in. But we also see the heart of the father's welcoming embrace as he quiets and he receives them. It's a really captivating picture, not just the painting, but the image that Jesus paints of who God is. And what it means for us to really have a relationship with him. This morning we're going to think about our relationship to God and what it looks like in the basis for it. And, and we really see that in this parable. And Jesus really is using this parable to clarify and explain the gospel to us. To give us a fresh look at what it really means to understand Jesus' message but he's also using this parable to show us what he's doing and what his ministry is really like and to see in a fresh way how he shows us the heart of God. And we're going to see those two things as we go through. And today, I just want you to get a fresh look at the core message of what Jesus is communicating through this parable as we look through this story. And I want you to think about your relationship with God. What is it like right now? Is it full of joy, rejoicing, warmth? Have you been distanced by the decisions that you've made? Has the thought of, of God always been just something that is distant from you because you look at what you've done in your life or the decisions you've made and you're really not sure if you can draw near to God and if God would embrace you? Have you come to a point in your life where you think you've got it all figured out and you've sort of, you've been making all the right choices and God kind of owes it. It's good, it's good that God has you on his team and he needs your advice. What's your relationship with God look like right now? What's feeding it? Well, Jesus uses this parable to clarify and explain the gospel for us. There are three movements to the parable. I don't know if you noticed that, but you see it from 11 through 16. We see a focus on the younger son. From verses 17 through 24, we see a focus on the father. And from verses 25 through 32, we see a focus on the older son. Jesus tells the story in three acts. It's a big play in three acts that we're to look closely at and reflect on. And so these three movements to the parable focus us on these three primary characters. And we're going to try to look at each of these movements in order and then see what they show us together. 
First, what we see as Jesus explains the gospel in this story, first we see that Jesus paints a vivid picture of our sin and our sin's effects. We see this as the story focuses on the youngest son, don't we? Let's look in Luke 15, 11 through 16. Let's just kind of, if you have a Bible or if you're following along on your phone, let's focus beginning in verse 11. Did you notice that, that he begins by, this youngest son begins by asking his father to give him the share of the inheritance that he has coming to him? You see, his sin is portrayed, and what Jesus is teaching about sin is portrayed first and foremost not as the reckless living he'll do in the far country, not just as the rebellious way of life that he will end up spending everything on, but at the core what we see is that his, his sin is a demand to separate the father from the things that the father would give him. You see, at the core, that's what sin really is. It's a way of saying, God, I don't want you. I don't need you, but just give me, give me what you got. I'd like the things that you provide. I'd like the blessing, but I'm not really interested in you. It's not the relationship I care about. I've got other things I want to do. Can I just have what's coming to me? You see, that's the heart of sin. Can I have my stuff and be rid of you? Well, in a sermon by Edmund Clowney, he explains that in an agricultural society, much of the wealth was tied up in the land that you owned. So for the younger son to receive what he had coming to him would have required the father to sell off some portion of what was owned and make it possible for the son to carry it off. In addition to saying something like, I'd be happy if you were dead if I could just have your inheritance, dad, which is what he's saying, he was also bringing a great deal of shame on the father in the broader community. Wow, did you hear what happened? He had to sell off all that land, and he just gave it to that son. I mean, that's he just ran off to a far country with everything the father had given him. And he's displaying the heart of sin here. What it looks like for us to say, I would rather have a life apart from God. I want to go take what God has built into creation, what God has given in terms of my gifts and talents and blessings and resources, and I just want to go do what I want and be left away from his watchful eye. This is what Jesus is showing us. And he brings great shame on the father and the community at large. He dishonors the father. The next thing that happens is the son heads away from the father to be able to live the life that he really desires out of the father's view. Away from where he can be seen. And in doing so, it says that he wastes away what has been given to him and what is described as reckless living. Now the real problem of sin now becomes apparent. You see, because uh, all the way up into this point, we might look and go, well, that seems like he's just going and doing what he wants. It's working out quite well for him. But we see that he uses up all of that in the way that he wants to live. But the real problem becomes apparent next. This is what we never anticipate about sin in life. As he's finishing up spending his wealth, neglecting, living a life that honors the Father, as he's finishing up spending his wealth, he finds himself in unforeseen circumstances that he's now unprotected from. Verse 14 said, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. You see, part of what sin does is it positions us to not be ready for the moments that we don't have control of in the future. 
You see, we think we're getting away with things. We're just doing stuff. But here he's, he's spending his life and he's not prepared thinking about what might be coming next. And he's unprepared and thinks he's able to control the world around him just like he can control the decisions about his wealth. But he finds himself in a time where he has no control on the circumstances around him. And he's totally unprepared to rescue himself. And so... This is what happens. The circumstances are beyond his capability to deal with, and he has no support or way to cope with it. And in a Jewish story, about the worst thing you could become was a pig farmer. Pigs were considered ceremonial, un, ceremonially unclean. Jewish people who hung around pigs had to go through a process before they could come and worship God. And so, uh, so there was this disdain for pigs and those who raised him. But now we see this son is now, uh, he's, he's, the only job he can find to take care of himself is to farm, work for a pig farmer. But it's even worse. In the end, in the end he longs to not just, he's not just there to make money and, and get food. He's so hungry and it's going so poorly that he wishes he could have the food that is for the pigs. But apparently they were keeping good track of it. You know, I was just thinking, you know, when you think about the story, like, uh, apparently he can't, you know, siphon off some of the pig's pods, right? Because they're keeping good track of it, and he, he longs to have it, but nobody will say, hey, you seem hungry. And he finds himself in a place of total destitution, unable to save himself. So Jesus portrays sin as a downward spiral that leaves us exposed to the harshest realities of life and in a position where we will end up giving ourselves to any shameful thing that we could do having never imagined we would end up where we end up after we pursued freedom down the road away from the father it's a massive downward spiral that's pictured. It reminds me of that quote that, it's, that it's, I've heard quoted so many times that nobody really knows who it's attributed to. But it says, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you wanted to pay. And this is the reality that Jesus paints of this younger son. Jesus gives us a vivid picture of where our sin will take us and leave us. You know, I don't know if you've ever hit that point where you realize that the you committed or the decisions that you made had brought you to a spot where you couldn't fix everything and you really needed God's help and hope. But that's what this story ultimately prepares us to see because after showing us a vivid picture of sin, the second thing he does is Jesus presents an inviting promise of grace. He doesn't just show us a picture of sin. He shows us an inviting promise of grace. We see this as the story shifts from focusing on the younger son's decisions to the father's reception. So at some point, uh, beginning in verse 17, we realize that at some point the son wonders about his father. What most of us wonder about returning to God. You see, in the midst of our own sin, we often come to a spot and, and do something similar to what we see the son here doing. He starts thinking of times past when he wasn't in that situation, where he wasn't feeling the effects of the decision he made. He said, those times, all of a sudden, they weren't all that bad. And he starts thinking about his father and, and wondering, what might it be like to go home 
is there any chance to go home? And we do this too. It's, you know, we can find ourselves in a place where we're like, is it possible for me to come home to God? What would it look like if I showed up all of a sudden and I began to engage with God? What kind of reception would I find? What would it be like if I went back to the Father? This is part of what Jesus is showing us in the story. He wants us to have crystal clarity about every one of us. Well, the youngest son's thoughts, of course, are directed to his father's house, and he comes to a conclusion. He comes to the conclusion that it would be better to be a servant in the father's house than out here on my own. It would better, be better. I don't even have to go back as a son if he would just take me back as a servant. It would be better in the father's house than out in the far country away from him. He starts to see right. This is what happens when we've seen what sin does to us and all of a sudden we start getting some clarity about life. We start to see straight again. The idea of going home as a servant in his father's house is so appealing that we see here that he hatches a plan. Here's what he knows. He, said, he, he knows, it says, that the servants there have more than enough bread. The father is kind and generous even to his servants so he makes this plan in verses 18 and 19. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He thinks just like every sinner thinks about God. If I can just get back there, maybe I can earn my way back into his approval. We all think that way. I certainly can't just come home. <laughs> But maybe if I start to bargain with God and say, God, you know, I know I probably have screwed up enough, but, but you know, I want to earn my way back to you. I want to start doing what's right, and maybe and if you'll just receive me back as a servant, I'll build my way back. So he starts his way home with his speech already. Got it all prepared. Maybe he put it on three by five cards, you know. He's got it tucked away for when he gets there. Verse 20 begins to show us this incredible portrait of grace. You see, while he's hatching this plan, it would seem that day after day, the father's been looking out in the distance. The father's been looking out in the horizon, wondering, is there any chance that he'll ever come back? Will he come back? So in verse 20, it says the son arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, out in the distance, while he's still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Now this is one of the most striking things in the passage. The father has been dishonored. The father has been sinned against. The father's resources have been pillaged for this reckless life, and he sees that son out in the distance while he's still a long way off, and his heart is moved with compassion. I mean, do you know this about God? <laughs> do you know that God, even when we're a long way off and thinking about coming home, that God's got this deep compassion, even for sinners, that he wants, he's thinking, you know, you can imagine what a father would be thinking. That boy's got to be ashamed. That boy's got to feel the weight of his guilt. He's got to know that coming back in here, 
is a really bold thing to do. Man, I want to make sure he doesn't turn around before he gets to the door. And it says while he's still a long way off, he has compassion and he runs out. He begins to run. And, and, and we're to see this picture of this old man, which in ancient Near Eastern cultures, old men did not run. Probably because, as I'm slowly finding out, they can't. <laughs> but they also don't because it's pretty undignifying to be old and trying to run. You know, people with dignity move slowly, don't they? People with honor who are concerned about how other people see them. Remember, this son had shamed him. Everybody knows what's going on. It's a communal society, and the father, forget about my honor, forget about my image, forget about when anybody else thinks about me, I'm going to get my son. And he runs out to him, and he embraces him, and he pulls him in close, and he kisses him. He says he does all this because of his compassion. An amazing idea. Now here's my favorite part, the speech. Right? So the son gets out his note cards, right? He's like, hang on, Dad, I've got a speech. And he begins into his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can even get the speech out of his mouth and make his request to be a hired servant, the father steps in and he starts celebrating the fact that his son came home, not his new servant. His son is home. He can't even finish his speech. <laughs> he doesn't even let him finish his speech. And what he does, he doesn't just celebrate, he puts the robe on him, the best robe, it says, which would have been the father's own robe, the family's best robe, to say, this is my son, this isn't just a servant or someone who lives nearby. He identifies with him, and he robes him. He takes the ring of the family, and he goes and he puts it on his finger, and he says, this is my son who is home. He's rejoicing. He gives him shoes for his feet. Then, as an act of reconciliation and celebration, he asks the servants to prepare the fattened calf. This is not just any other day. The fattened calf is the best food they've got. They're going to butcher that thing. They're going to cook it. They're going to have enough food for them and the people in the surrounding community, and anyone who is willing to come in and celebrate, both in the family and beyond, can come because they've killed the fatted calf. The son is home. They're celebrating. Come, everybody. Rejoice with me. My son is here. That's what he's doing. The father's thrilled. He's thrilled. You can hear it. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. The father is rejoicing. What a portrayal. What a portrayal of God's receptivity to us coming home. I mean, isn't this remarkable sinners who repent find this kind of welcome when they turn their hearts to God? This is what Jesus is saying. A, a sinner who repents and decides, I'll come home and just trust the grace and mercy of the Father. What they find is an amazing, incredible, undeserved welcome from the Father. Doesn't matter how far away you've been. 
It doesn't matter what you've been up to in the far country. If you're willing to leave it behind and come back to the Father, He won't just tolerate you. He'll rejoice. He'll rejoice. And He wants everyone in the family to rejoice with Him. And so they begin to celebrate. Everyone, that is, except the older son. You see, the last portion of verses shows us another reaction. Through it, Jesus portrays the destructive power of self-righteousness. Beginning in verse 25 through 32, we get this, this introduction into the story, again, of the other son. We see this this self-righteousness as the story focuses us in on him. It pictures the older son as dutifully returning from his day in the field, hearing the sounds of a celebration, wondering what is going on. He asks what all of this means. One of the servants quickly explains that the father is rejoicing because his younger brother has come home. As a result of the father's joy, he's killed the fattened calf and everyone is beginning to celebrate. Let's go! But instead of rejoicing with the father, we see that this brother is angry. And it says he refuses to go in to the celebration. When his father comes out, it says that he is entreating him to come in and rejoice with him. This isn't just a casual conversation. This word entreating, he's, he's begging him to join him, to call him alongside is what the word means. Come alongside with me. Let's walk in here together. Share in my joy. Son, celebrate with me. It's a relational term, this entreating. It's relational, the biggest loss in the story was the father's loss. And anyone who genuinely loves the father would be rejoicing alongside him right now. But his older son is angry, refuses to go in. He makes a speech about how the father's never given him a goat to celebrate with his friends. He criticizes the father for being too lavish in his celebration. Now, there are two things worth, worth noticing. First, at the beginning of the story, when the younger son requests his portion of the inheritance, it says that he divided his property between them. So really, the younger son has not lacked, uh, the older son has not lacked opportunity, and he's still the heir to everything that's owned. The father even points this out. This all belongs to you. I mean, everything I have belongs to you. You're going to get it all. Second thing we notice is that he really has the same attitude toward the father that the younger one did. He's not concerned with the father, with his relationship with his father, with his father's joy, with his father's honor. Or he wasn't ever concerned with his father's previous sorrow. He just wants what belongs to the father so he can go do what he wants. You see, the older son felt the same way as the younger son, but he just never had the guts to leave. He's got the same relationship with dad. <laughs> I want my stuff. Like, who cares how happy you are? <laughs> who 
cares that something valuable to you that has been lost has been returned? What about me? Don't you see everything I've done? How good I am? How good of a person I've been? I've always gotten it right. This is just overblown self-righteousness. Of the very religious kind we often find in church-going people like us. It says, I'm doing way better than everyone else out there. You know why? God, throw me some help. This is, it comes out when we don't get the things we want from God. When we've been praying for that job promotion and we didn't get it and now it's God's fault. And we've been doing everything right and he owes us. When we go through that trial or difficulty and we're angry, how could you do this to me? Don't you see what I deserve? See, we think we're so good that we're owed something by God. But from the beginning, it all belonged to the Father. There's nothing that the older son had that he made. This is about a story about inheriting something. Something undeserved. Something he hadn't really worked for. He's there because of the father, just like the younger son. And so, he really has the same attitude. Now here's the problem. Self-righteousness says, I've earned all this. That should be my fattened calf, and I didn't even get a goat. I don't like goat, so I'm not sure why he's asking for it. But this other guy doesn't deserve any blessing when I'm over here unappreciated for my achievement. But let's not forget, it is an inheritance. See, we sin when we separate the Father's gifts from a genuine desire to be with the Father. A genuine desire to know Him, to honor Him, to live a life in relationship with Him, under His care, and to pretend like we've earned what we've got. Jesus ends the story with a cliffhanging question mark of whether the older son will honor the father by joining him in his joy. You see, at the end of the story, as far as we know, he's still standing outside. And the big question is, will he come in and rejoice? You see, self-righteousness will leave us outside the banquet of salvation. Repentance is the only way into the celebration. You see, the, the younger son had to repent from the far country, and the older son just had to repent from the yard. But both of them had to repent to go anything. And the only way into the feast, the only way into the banquet, is to acknowledge that we have so often wanted life apart from God, our way, and the only way to really receive the hope of his salvation, to receive eternal life, is to know that God gives it by grace. But, but look what we have. We have a gracious Father who receives sinners. And today, no matter you, whether you've been the rebellious sinner in the far country or the self-righteous sinner nearby who's trying to do it all good so you can control God, you can repent from where you're at. You can leave that kind of life behind and you can believe in a God of grace who welcomes sinners home. And so Jesus uses this to teach the gospel. But the second thing that we see really in the passage, in the, maybe the most important thing, is that Jesus uses this parable to clarify and explain his ministry. So if we stopped right here, that, that would be good enough. We would have enough for today. But the gospel, you know, and, and we see that the gospel is powerfully explained here by Jesus as a promise of God's grace for sinners who repent and come home to the Father. But I think it's important for us to ask the question before we finish, what is Jesus doing with this story? 
Why is he telling it? What's happening? Well, the answer is clear from the context of Luke chapter 15. It is the third story in a set of three parables about lost things. If you go back to verse 1, you see that the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. So tax collectors and sinners, those are the far country sinners, the younger sons. They're all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, those are your older son sinners. They're grumbling, complaining, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You know the story, right? The father receives a sinner and eats with him. Same complaint. <laughs> you see, what's going on is Jesus is telling, Jesus is responding to this situation. As Jesus is telling, as Jesus is, is explaining it here, it's really a response to the Pharisees. You see, as Jesus is there telling God's lost children about the invitation of grace for those who are willing to return to him, the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling and complaining that this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so the grumbling Pharisees are obviously the older brother in this story who are grumbling against the prospect of God's grace and celebrating their own righteousness. But here's what Jesus is saying through this parable. He's saying, my ministry... What I've come to do is in contrast to what these grumbling Pharisees are here to do. You see, they're religious leaders too. They have a spiritual vision that they're painting for the people. And Jesus says, I have a contrasting spiritual vision to what you have. And I want to show you what the Father is really like. And there's a reason I'm out here with tax collectors and sinners and eating with them and talking to them and, and telling them the welcome that they can receive if they'll repent and return home. Because it's in contrast to what you are. You see, what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees is, my ministry is a contrast to yours. In effect, he is saying, my ministry, what I'm doing is what this story would look like if there was an older son who truly loved the father and shared his heart. That's what he's saying. You see, it's a contrast story. Pharisees are the older son. Jesus is what it would look like if there was an older son who truly loved the father and shared his heart. Had the same heart as the father. If there was an older son who was in deep, loving relationship with the father and was just like him and cared about what the father cares about. You see, Jesus is the true son of the father. That's the story he's telling. That is how he talks about himself. He is here going about his father's business. Unlike the older son in the story, Jesus, the true older brother, left the father's house to go pursue lost sinners. The, this parable, the third parable where something is lost, the first two is a sheep and a coin. And in both parables, the first two, there's a search. In the third parable where the Pharisees and scribes are portrayed, there's no searching for what was lost. There's no searching. But the true son, Jesus Christ, is here. He's here and he's come and he comes to seek and to save the lost. He's gone, he left the comforts of heaven and he has gone into the far country of this world to find the father's lost children. He is, this is how he describes his ministry and this is who he is for us. He is the true son who goes and he seeks the father's lost children in the far country. 
Unlike the older son in the story, Jesus, the true older brother, is the one who is willing to become a servant to see lost sinners restored to God's family. Philippians chapter 2 says not only did Jesus, the son, take on flesh and dwell among us, but he took on the form of a servant. And while, while the, the younger son, the sinner, is thinking, maybe I could be a servant in my father's house, what, what Jesus is saying is, maybe I can go be a servant in the far country so sinners can be returned to sons. Unlike the older son in the story, Jesus isn't worried about the lavish sacrifice of the fattened calf. He himself is the sacrifice. He himself pays the cost for reconciling lost children to their father and welcoming them to the feast. You see, the cross was Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross was his payment for the debt of our sin that restores us to God. He is the sacrifice that provides the feast around the Father's table. This is what Jesus is showing about who he is. A true older son. Unlike the older son in the story, Jesus is concerned. Jesus isn't concerned about the lavish spending of his inheritance. But the New Testament tells us that he makes repentant sinners co-heirs with him. And upon their return, he shares everything that remains with them. Unlike the older son in the story, Jesus brings us home, and he throws the feast himself. He invites us to the banquet where the father is honored and celebrated for his love. Jesus is the real older brother. When I was in Argentina earlier this year, there was a sculpture garden in the town where I was that took up the whole mountain with sculptures about the life and ministry of Jesus. You, can see a, you should see a picture up there if everything's working right. It's not working right. Oh, we lost everything? First Sunday jitters, you know. Looks like I might have to describe it to you. Well, you'd hike along this path and observe them. It was pretty amazing. One of them was a sculpture called Jesus and the Prodigal Son. And, uh, you know, there's this picture of Jesus wrapping his arms around this younger son. And there's just this picture of joy and delight on his face. Really powerful image, and I was just walking through and seeing this, this powerful image, and, and I was captivated by it, comforted by seeing it. And as I thought at the time, I was like, well, really in the story, it's the father who embraces the prodigal son. You know, I was like sort of feeling this weird, like, yeah, okay, but, you know, the story is, it's a father, it's not Jesus, and, you know, the, in the story, Jesus tells about, you know, you know the, the sculptor kind of, maybe he got it wrong. There was like being theologically particular. But as I've been studying this parable, it hit me. The sculptor actually got it right. You see, in the story, Jesus tells about the Pharisees here, the one we've been looking at. The older son couldn't care less about the lost brother and won't celebrate with the father. But in the true story of life, true story about God, the gospel Jesus came to reveal. The lost sons and daughters don't have to come to their own senses and find their way back and wonder if they can even be servants. Jesus has come to them. He's out finding them, embracing them with the same Father's love and leading them all the way back home. You see, that's the, that's the powerful difference of the gospel. It's not just people out there finding their way back to God, but God it's coming looking for you. And he has a son. A son 
who goes out on his behalf. And he meets us where we're at. And he says, you can come home. You can come home. You're welcome. And even if it takes everything that I have left from what our Father possessed, I want you to come back. Rejoin the family. Be a part of this. You can come home. And so as we close, we have to respond. We have to respond. You see, there, there are three ways that you could miss the point and fail to honor the Father. In a moment, we're going to sing. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper. But there's, there's a way that you may need to respond this morning. And there's three ways you can really miss this and miss a moment in your life where you could connect with God even right now this morning where you're at. You could just refuse to come home. And some of you, that's probably what you've been doing in your life. You've, you've sinned against God, and you know that you've lived a life apart from God, that you don't think much at all about relating to God, who He is, what matters to Him, what would honor Him, and you've been out living your life, and you only think about Him in, from maybe some benefits that He might be able to give you, and, but you've never thought, I'm just going to go home and trust myself to the Father. And you could miss all that God has for you, both now and in eternity, because you refuse to come home. Coming home means leaving our commitment to our sin and turning and saying to the Father, I, I trust you, forgive me because of what Jesus did for me. Wash me clean and receive me back. And some of you know that you've played religious games on the surface your whole life, but deep down you've never come home to God. Would today be the day? Today be the day where you come home. Think about what kind of father is waiting there for you. You could also miss it by refusing to come into the feast. You might be sitting there thinking, I've been so good. Why, why in the world do I have to come home? I mean, I, I've done so many things right. This, I just need a small tune-up. So, Father, you, you need way more than that. You can do nothing good apart from me. Nothing you've ever had did you give to yourself. And repentance for you looks like coming into the feast and saying, Father, you're the true joy. Not what I've been pursuing, not what I've been trying to get right. Some of you today, you need to, you need to return to the Father for the first time from the yard. <laughs> you think you're not that far away? You may be nearby physically but you've never come home to him. You've never really sincerely turned your life over to Christ. And today the Lord is saying, don't trust your goodness. Don't count on how good you've been and negotiate with me. Just come in to the feast. I'll welcome you in too. Let's walk in together. There's a third way you could miss the point and fail to honor the Father. You could refuse to join Jesus in pursuing the lost. This is the Father's heart. <laughs> what he said is, all over, uh, all over this room and all over our community are people who God has invited to repent and come home and find the joy of what life is really about as they learn to walk with him. 
But so often we are consumed with our own lives. And if you're a Christian in here, you maybe aren't concerned about lost people in our community and people who don't know Christ and who need hope for eternity. And, and, and we're just, we're, we're not pursuing or going into the far country, imitating Jesus and, and helping remind people that they can come home to the Father. That Jesus has provided a way for them. I wonder if you need to just say to God, you know, I want to join you again in a fresh way. I want to be part of what you're doing in this community to call people into relationship with you and give them hope through salvation in Jesus Christ. And today, you may just need to get before the Lord as we take the Lord's Supper and just say, God, I, I want you to use me. I want to go seek and save the lost with you. Help me do whatever it takes to become the kind of person who is willing to be like Jesus. Pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would work in this moment as we sing and reflect. Lord, we ask that you would give us boldness to respond. Lord, I just pray all over this room where people are seated, Lord, that they would just, just make an altar in their hearts right now before you and come before you and respond. Lord, I pray for the person who needs for the first time to turn from their sin and put their hope and faith in Jesus Christ, that they would respond right now. Lord, I pray for, for you to stir up a fresh zeal for evangelism and reaching people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to confront our own self-righteousness and be renewed with the joy that you have as you forgive our sins and show us that our relationship with you is by grace. So we love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.